You're listening to a podcast from the University of Warwick. This series was produced as part of the conference All Together Now, British Theatre After Multiculturalism. The conference was organised in collaboration with the British Theatre Consortium. In this episode, we hear the question and answer session from the panel discussion, A National Narrative. Um, we're going to go now to the part of the, of the programme that involves you. Uh, and we're going to have some conversation now for the next 45 minutes or so. So we have time to really um, talk to each other about some of these things. Um, listening to people discuss the topic, I was thinking that there were a number of um, avenues in, if you will, that you saw here this morning, um, developed in various ways. Um, Barry started his talk by mentioning that all, uh, that, that his pre predecessors had mentioned human conflict as being always contemporary. And that seemed to me to emerge from the three speakers as one of the um, assertions about the nature, I suppose, of, of, of great uh, contemporary theater, um, that at its heart, the stuff of human conflict is, is where it is. On our question of the nation, there was a, um, a choice in many ways to address how playwrights do discuss the nation and whether that is something, as Howard says, that is instinctual or perhaps even accidental or whether it is something that is done in one way in order to achieve another, such as Shakespeare uh, beginning uh, with, with geography or with a different location in order to be able to say and address something to a present time. Um, the notion that something that you write at one time might be received later in a different way. Um, all of those questions about how, how one addresses the nation, um, if you are a writer, seem to me to be quite on the table here. Um, Michael started with, the, with the, uh, alluding to the contestation of Shakespeare as a, as a national figure and whether he is uh, a productive source for us or whether, uh, uh, or whether there's a, a problem of legacy there. And of course, he believes that, that Shakespeare can be a great um, figure, a great inspirational figure for us. Um, it may be that some of you don't think so and would want to articulate that, so we can hear that as well. And then I was thinking about this business of the contestation of arts and government and the way that we figure out our relationships to whoever it is that's in power, whoever it is that's in number 10 or the party in power at that time. Um, and I thought that's also a question. How does theater address the nation with the changing face of who's running the show, if you will? And then the thing I expected everybody to talk about and nobody did, which is what is the nation now? Um, Michael said the nation is broken and Shakespeare knew it. He knew it in his time and that's one connection to our time. But the very quality of what constitutes the nation seems to me to be under question today. So maybe some of you will want to <coughs> pick that up and find out from our speakers what they think the real nation is. I suppose maybe Barry had the clearest sense of that. And it's the, the Lammers who said we'd like to come see your, your show again. Um, but our sheep business means that we have something else we have to do this week. And I think the reason he loved that letter is it has something to say uh, about the nation as well. So maybe we can go there. Okay, I'm, I'm opening this. We have two microphones. We'd ask you to use them because that's how we're um, gonna do the audio recording. Two of the helpers are gonna take those around um, and I'm just gonna try to ring lead. So um, who would like to start? Or who's willing to start? Sometimes that's the more pressing thing, getting going. <coughs> Say what I mean. 
We'll oh. just throw a microphone into the audience. The first one who can. Okay, <laughs> here we go. Over here, please. <laughs> first question. Yes, uh, the thing that comes up for me, because I work in remote alternative theatre settings, um, is that question of where you say this and how and who you say it to and in what context, which in fact Barry did raise, which for me is absolutely crucial. I was at a workshop session about three weeks ago when somebody started talking about the English Revolution to a group of young Muslim women and we talked about the English Revolution. They never heard of it and they were very interested to know that most English left political thought had developed out of religion, out of Protestantism. And so who are we speaking to? Why and where? And then I'll take that back to the issue of government and relationship with government. Because I'd just like to say that we all know that when shit hits fan, the money starts to leave those areas where that conversation about the English Revolution might interestingly take place um, and usefully and healingly take place. Thank you. Which of our panelists might like to comment on that? When you say who we do it, did you say who we're doing it for? Yeah, I did, but I, uh, you know, all through what I do, I, I, I'm speaking to myself. But well, in a way that you know, I want to try and work always at the top of my integrity, and I'll fail because that's human. But I put my own head on the pillar. Uh, there might be somebody else's next to it, but I dream my own dreams. Uh, and if I've not worked at the top of my integrity on anything I'm doing, which is always in the public, uh, I I in the public realm, because that's the nature of the work, then I'm doing, it, I'm doing it for me. What comes of that, uh, then, then that's a further debate. But I, I, I'm not going out to deliberately play in a cattle market and say, look at me, aren't I good for playing? Or playing to, you know, I don't mind who comes to the shows. Um, uh, but, but as long as the debate happens and, the, and, and one can be a, a provider, if you like, uh, from the great uh, classic works or new plays down the motorway of information and the audience receive it and it disseminates then into discussion. I, I'm, not, I'm not good enough or clever enough to do it for someone other than myself and like colleagues. Well, but I think it is true, is it not, that you've really sought out a regional audience. I mean, you have had a sense of who you wanted to talk to in a kind of quotational way, yeah? Well, yes, but only in hindsight. You know, I didn't set out to do anything other than what I did in 92 with one play. The fact that what's happened since and, and everything that, 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 that I've been involved with or, I've, I, you know, I've, I, I, has touched me, then I can articulate it only because it's happened. The hindsight is terrific. But I didn't set out to proselytize or do anything or talk to a particular audience. I just thought I had one bloody good idea, which Tony Harrison taught me the dignity of my own voice in terms of uh, doing his plays at the National and on television, where he always wrote in his own northern voice and used the classical form to write it in. And then I went back, and in 92, what I did was a very revolutionary idea. No bugger in England had ever done it before. It didn't make me better than anybody else, but it gave me the right to make a fuss. I'm oh, sorry, could I add? Ever since. Could I add? Well, I was trying to raise the issue 
of if we are talking about multicultures and all together now, is and notions of Englishness, is how we share and develop those and where and how we do that. And I just use the example of the English Revolution as, as one of the ways in which we might share that history with people who have many attitudes and many histories and many ways of relating to history. I, I can't, won't go, take hours to go into detail. And so that that moment for me in with a group of people of more than one religion and several historical backgrounds where the issue of the English Revolution was clearly unknown and where maybe reciprocally there were many things unknown to me in that situation. Now that's a place where most playwrights can't speak or don't speak because they're simply not there. They're obscure places, places within communities, places within cities, within, if it's Lammers, areas of the countryside. That's what I was trying to say, that that's a question I want to ask is how, given all sorts of circumstances, that very fruitful, possibly, exchange might be forwarded. One of the questions we might ask you, Michael, is thinking about the institution of RSC. You obviously think about who you're speaking to and who the people are that are coming to the theater. Um, do you have a comment on how you think now about, uh, after having been in the job for a while, how you're tending to think about your, your audiences and, and how you see the address? Well, one, one aspect has been that I think the RSC feels more comfortable in its skin now as a, 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 a one of its roles, being a regional theatre as well as being a national and an international one. And as a regional theatre, we're right next door to Coventry and Birmingham. And just picking up on, on, on your point, when we commissioned Yasmin Alibi Brown to write her story um, for the stage of a moment in a uh, production of Romeo and Juliet in, in Uganda in her childhood, uh, she found the narratives, uh, as, a, as a, a Muslim Asian living in Uganda, she found that the narratives of Shakespeare spoke to her directly, like social realism, not even as, a, uh, as, as any kind of metaphor. And um, another recent commission of Suleiman al-Bassam, uh, an Arab director, re taking another look at Richard III at the same time as, as, as we were looking at the whole of the histories, he inevitably, A, took a different look at it, B, attracted a different audience to it, that saw, um, again, that saw immediately issues of, of dynastic rule, of, of feudal rule, of um, the, the, the use and abuse of religion as an excuse for making war, the, um, uh, the, 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 the dynastic battles within families, within nations. There, there was an Arab audience for that. Uh, a, a Midsummer Night's Dream that we, that, that, that we commissioned with a largely, with a Southeast Asian cast, attracted, immediately brought to Stratford um, uh, full houses in the swan of, of Birmingham Asian families who again were looking at issues of, of dynastic marriage like it was a soap opera. Uh, 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 so I think you're absolutely right that it, 
it, it's crucial. Um, when I when I was a, a, a glorified T-boy trainee director in the Soviet Union in 1980, I was seeing everybody in the audience and in the theatre completely understand the contemporary nature of Shakespeare's political uh, landscape in a way that I didn't witness back at home. Um, because they were they 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 could relate to a culture where where censorship was was extremely visible, where a very powerful new revolution of the past generation has has completely changed the cultural landscape. They uh, where there was a sort of semiotic black hole in terms of um, things you could grasp hold of to express what it's like to be alive. Um, so yes, I, the, the 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 last wee thing I would say is that actually. It is also, on a more local level, terribly important where you say it. And just as I think Barry's sheep pen is crucial, although, of course, can you, how many people can you get into that sheep pen or that fashionable warehouse in, East, in, in the East End of London? Um, can you keep, the, the, uh, where can you keep theatre as a discourse going on a reasonably large scale so you can say, argue reasonably, it's within the public domain. So how many seats? Peter Brooks says more than a thousand seats is a dead theatre. Um, is less than 500 not part of public culture? So where, where, what are we, who are we, well, how many are we trying to play to? Also, I would argue theatre architecture, I would say along with the catastrophe of, of Bernard Shaw, um, comes the catastrophe of uh, the proscenium arch, which places the audience in one room and, 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 and what's going on in another. Um, and I, I think we do need to work in spaces where we, sh we, we share the same time and the same air at the same time. I remember um, Howard was doing an extremis at the Globe, and we had some conversations about what it was like to work in that space. Yes. And you had some things to say about the audiences and the audience behavior. And you loved it there yes. because of its popular. I'm writing a new play for them a couple of years' time. Will you speak about yeah. the, the nature of, the, of that space as a, as a follow-up? Well, it's like with Barry. Just like said. Barry says, it's, you know, it's us and them, really. It's, um, it's bang. I'd, I'd like to just say something about the English Revolution and what you were saying. Last year, I wrote a two-hour-long drama commissioned by the BBC television called The Regicides. And it follows the 55 days between the pooch when they closed down the parliament, threw, out the threw a lot of people out of parliament, and the 55 days between that event and when they executed Charles I internecine, terrifying, frightening days during which this country was founded, in effect, the country we're living in. The BBC turned it down. They turned it down saying, can't we just cut the trial and cut out all this politics? Okay? Now, I'm... It's called The Regicides. I want to dramatise it for the stage. I'm in a terrible nightmare situation over rights with the material, which 
my agent, which we will try and resolve. Then I can go to Michael, to the door, or where? Where do I go with the show? Me. Do I go to him? Yeah. Do I go to the, do I, where? You see, that, that's my question to you. Do I, do I go to, to, to Nick at the, and make, we make a big splash on the Olivier? Yeah, with huge press coverage, that. Or do I go to the Overhouse? Yes. Where do I, where, where do you go? No. Well, you can play anything. You don't need to, you know, but that's the question. I mean, my answer will be I'll go to the loudest and biggest theatre and get it on and count myself lucky that I can. Okay. Milton Keynes Bowl. (laughs) (laughs) Can I take... uh, uh, Oh, yes, please, go ahead. Um, I said that stuff. Okay. (laughs) Could I take somebody else, please? Yes, over here. And could you please also say your name? That's, a, that's something I should have asked people yeah, to do already. Yeah, no problem. My yeah. name's Hardy Schwerk. I do a lot of work in audience development, particularly in theatre. And I actually worked on the Mids- Midsummer Night's Dream, the Tim Supple's Indian version, um, which was to engage South Asian audiences for the tour. What was really interesting was, um, it was when I went through the audience research afterwards, was the responses, the generic responses we got from the Asian audiences and the traditional white audiences, whereas language was a very powerful tool within the Tim Supple's version because there was, I think, seven, eight different South Asian or Indian languages, Tamil, Sanskrit, Hindi, um, Bengali. And um, so there was a, a reference point for a lot of people that we were trying to engage with in terms of using language as an angle to get people in through the door. And uh, I mean, it wasn't necessarily the classical dance pieces or the costumes or the fact that it was based in Rajasthan, but it was actually the language was a very um, um, key integral to us um, using that as a marketing tool and also trying to engage people to come and see this piece of, piece of work. Um, on the other side, um, some of the refer- um, responses we got from the white audiences was that it was blasphemous to actually use such a diverse range of languages that weren't English to be used in the Shakespearean um, play. So it was a really interesting response that I got through the audience research what it did was language was integral to getting these audiences in through these um, institutions across the country and for people to engage with probably Shakespeare for the very first time. We're talking about families that don't go to the theatre, um, probably wouldn't, wouldn't go to their repertory theatres in the cities. So it was a very interesting process. And I've done a lot of um, audience development work with some major touring productions. And I think that was probably one of the most interesting um, productions to work on. Um, I suspect, I, I actually know, I, I do know that the response that that production got in India was totally different to the response that it got with eight South Asian audiences in this country, where it first toured was in India. So it's, a, it's more of a statement as opposed to a question, anyway. Yeah, any we c- we can have some responses about the question of language and how it's used. Um, I think you've just put that on the table in a good way around the question of both nation and internationally. How does language function? Um, there's a new book on audiences by Dennis Kennedy that I was reading this last week talking about Shakespeare being used around the world. And, um, and that often the, the language, the, the translation is the important thing. And it, it sometimes captures the, uh, the poetry and the scope of the, of the uh, original. But often that isn't the, that isn't the most important thing. 
And I got to thinking about, we, we often celebrate the language of, of Shakespeare, but the translation into another language, which alters it, but makes it um, accessible, is a very valuable thing as well. So how do the panelists feel about the issue of language, and what is the national mark of it, and is that important? Well, it is a, it is a burden that, that produces the Shakespeare, it's both a burden and a joy, as, as, as Barry was, was brilliant on. But it is a burden that we are dealing with 17th century English. Um, and if, if there have been moments, many in Eastern Europe, when I have felt I was seeing people actually get to the viscera of a Shakespeare play effortlessly by accident, as Howard says, not consciously trying to be contemporary or relevant. They just couldn't help it. Some of that ha is assisted by the fact that, say, when they were doing um, one particularly great King Lear, they were dealing with Pasternak, um, uh, an author who uh, lived through the Russian Revolution and so completely understood what it was like for a nation to be divided um, in pieces um, in the way described in King Lear, uh, also happened to be a, an absolutely genius poet and was able, by accident, to talk to the audience for that production in, a, in an immediately recognizable vernacular. Um, I'm, on Monday, about to start rehearsal on the first, first new play I've done in well over a decade. And I think probably the first new play an RSC director has done in more than a decade. Um, and I am looking forward to, I have to say, a rehearsal room where we're talking to the audience in their own immediate language um, of contemporary English. Although the irony is that will, in this particular instance, be in translation uh, from the Russian. Um, uh, but the, imme the, the immediacy of uh, the, the I, I think some, some, some countries do get stuck with a sort of 19th century translation that becomes a classic. and. Uh, you've almost got a Shakespeare problem uh, repeated abroad where somebody did something definitive at the turn of the century, which it's very difficult to pull yourself away from. And when you do, people say, why are they doing that? What's wrong with the previous translation? Um, having said that, we certainly argue at the RSC that the, the, the muscular difficulty, if you like, of addressing Shakespeare's 17th, uh, early 17th century English um, is, is one of the great joys of life for an eight-year-old or a 98-year-old. Or yeah. uh, and, um, and actually, the control of those noises puts you in some magical, just in an ordinary way with the past. Mm -hmm. Actually, to have those noises in your, in your, either in your ears and your head or in your, your, your body through speaking them uh, there's something empowering um, and something good that we can share about that as well. I uh, took my, well, my, my oldest son when he was nine with some trepidation to see Coriolanus, not the easiest of plays, and he, uh, uh, and he sailed through it. Despite, and the reason was that he knew what the characters were doing to each other. That is, the language comes, is so straight, mm. hot out of action. 
people doing things to each other. And with Shakespeare, that's very powerful. Um, so even when you, you've got a lot of God's pots, what, what wallet or something, you know, or pigs, this, that, and the other, uh, you know the stuff, <laughs> the comic writing, uh, um, uh, it, you know what they're doing to each other. It's always a shock to go and see a play by, like The Revenge of Tragedy by one of his contemporaries, where the language is incredibly difficult because it's sort of muddy about, actually, who is doing what to whom. It's not that ferocious. Um, so that's what I'd say about... <laughs> it's one of the great inheritances. On, yeah. on language, it's another example in which Shakespeare's a great exemplar in that while he was familiar with the Latinate, the Latin language of the court, the big long words, he was also completely marinated in good old Anglo-Saxon um, simplicities. Um, and and, and, and uh, uh, it's not about simplicity, that's a ridiculous patronization. It's actually an embodied language with associated meanings around each word, that they're, they're, they're about objects, they're about things that have reverberations, rather than the, the language of Latin and of the court, yeah. which is about, uh, very useful, very necessary, <coughs> the capture of ideas and abstractions. And um, I, that's just a, a, a small advert for actually working with Shakespeare's original language, rather than even Boris Pasternak's genius Russian. And uh, I always say to a, a company on the first day of rehearsal, if we're doing a Shakespeare, I say, nobody's ever seen this play before. So how do we tell the story? How do we story act? I often say to actors, you're not story acting. And if they don't know what I mean, I explain. Yeah, no They're singing. not story acting. They s no singing. Yeah. yeah. And, uh, you know, often, uh, often, uh, you know, the... The, the way his plays are put together. I painstakingly, on a computer, when we did our, uh, my edit of The Wars of the Roses three years ago, I took out every extraneous comma that Pope and other bloody editors had put in to these texts over the centuries. My God, the read-throughs were a lot better. Because actors are buggers for, uh, for, for acting a comma, making a pause in the line. Drives me mad. So I took them all out painstakingly on a computer, three plays. Uh, and the, the read-through was, was a great deal better. But, you know, all that use of language, uh, and often, at his most passionate, Shakespeare uses that great rock and roll thing called the monosyllable. When Mr. Capulet's mad at his daughter, he says, day, night, work, play, alone, in company, still my care hath been to have her matched. There's only two words in three lines that have more than one syllable. And you can really rock it and rock and roll and, and uh, you know, uh, be percussive and rhythmic on those things. And right through, right through the uh, Henry Sixes, particularly, you have these great monosyllabic um, uh, passages at the height of, of, of the biggest passion, often. And people say, what does this line mean? I say, it's a rhyming couplet. Hit the bloody couplet, tell you what it means. And it does. So I always see a way out of Shakespeare or, or, or uh, from us to an audience via the construction, not in spite of it. I'm not a great uh, modern, uh, uh, um, what's the word called, uh, psychology. 
you know, where often words and lines are chopped up like bloody chopping sausages up, uh, where every and is hammered, where every pronoun is hammered. My sword! Well, whose fucking hell's the hell's sword is it? It's my sword! You know, the, these plagues that go through a lot of classical English acting, um, <laughs> pronouns, hand acting, you know, uh, and it's dreadful. Uh, so I, I encourage via the construction, not in spite of it. Me. Sorry. Can I go up here to the woman in yellow, please? Oh, that's yes, me. that's you. <laughs> Hi, it's Amin Wasser and I was trying really hard not to speak, Barbara, but um, I just want to ask a question to all the panel. Um, I'm slightly confused because I thought I was at a conference about after multiculturalism, and maybe it's because we are now post-multiculturalism, even though I didn't realise that had happened, so I'm quite interested to know what we are in, seeing as multiculturalism is obviously dead. Um, and maybe it is dead in theatre, and maybe that is a good thing, but I would be really interested to know how multiculturalism affects the way you do the jobs that you do. All three of you are very interesting, but I didn't get a sense of that from what you said earlier. And um, maybe that is because of the state that theatre is in. Maybe that is because we have a failure of language in this country that doesn't allow us to discuss these things in ways that are open and interesting. Um, and maybe that's because multiculturalism never made it into the national narrative. But I'd be really interested to have a sense of how it impacts on your work, not necessarily just the plays that you commission, but all of your work. That's my question. Thank you for bringing things back to the, to the topic. Please? Well, it, I'll just kick off with something. Sure, sure. One of the, um, the pleasures and the responsibilities of, of running the RSC is that you're, wor you're working again with an author that uh, allows you, for instance, to uh, collaborate with artists uh, from other cultures, either um, distinct cultures within Britishness or indeed international cultures. Um, because, because Shakespeare is fairly impatient with a literalism. Um, so it, it does allow us a certain freedom in that way, and that is good um, and enlightening uh, for us in production. Um, it did, in, in say, the, the, the histories, there were different configurations of white British and African black British actors in two different versions that I did of the Henry VI plays, for instance. Um, there was one glorious moment in the first version where, by complete accident, there was a moment when the brothers completely took over. It was Henry VI, played by David Yellowo. Clarence, played by Rashan Stone, um, and, uh, and, and the Earl of Warwick were all um, suddenly in control of the, of the universe. And the way they started immediately distrusting each other was, was, fan was fantastic. I'm about to go into something that's a bit more interesting. Not long ago, a director working for the, the RSC uh, with me, with a sort of independent company, um, resisted some, uh, our normal policy of uh, multicultural or colorblind or whatever what you want to call it, casting, um, on the grounds that both uh, a Shakespeare production that they were doing and 
um, uh, an, another play, well, a Russian play, were uh, conceived uh, uh, as being Russian pieces of a certain time, and it just wouldn't work. You just couldn't. And on Monday, I start work with a lovely young Ukrainian writer for whom this is the, the, the premiere of her play. It it's not been done in Ukraine or in Russia. And she's admitted it's going to be tricky for her seeing her grandparents played by people whose roots are in, are, are, are in Africa. It's, it's something, it is unbelievable to her. She's a good artist, good writer, and a good person, so she's absolutely up for it and open. Um, all, actually, I think it will, it will be great, um, not least because it will alert the audience to the fact that it's only pretend. Um, it, we're telling a story. It's not. We're, we are blessed in be, being free of the, 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 the pressure on film and telly to be, to be literal and recognisable in that way. I'm often impatient with the, the rebaptism of the world, the present world, upon our classics of the past in terms of multiculturalism and uh, colourblind casting. Uh, I have to admit that. It, you know, I've seen Othello's where there is another black person on the stage. I'm sorry, it makes fucking nonsense of the play. You have one black person on that stage, and that's it. Otherwise, <laughs> the game's up. Don't do the play. If there is another black face on that stage, which cannot be commented on because Shakespeare doesn't allow it, so that's the sort of impatience I'm at, that rebaptism of our modern. I'd much sooner encourage uh, and want to um, the, the, the writing that absorbs the world we are and the new writing and the things that go on. Um, it's, it's often very, I, I just find it naff, uh, the, the fact that we're asked so often to be colorblind. Um, and you get silly things happening, like. Uh, I, I, all right, I'm not having a go at Michael, but it was in his house uh, a few years ago where there was a black member of the court in The Tempest. And when Sebastian and uh, Antonio are going on about going to bloody Africa, they say about the Afric, and they're vitriolic about going to Africa in the first place for Thingy to get married, there's the black actor as a member of the court. And in mime, because there's no words, they had to say, oh, no, not you. Oh, I didn't mean you, because he stood up with great... Uh, and you think, bugger off. Because it's rubbish. Because it, there's no words about it. It all happened in mine. And that sort of thing that goes on, where you just plunk uh, a sort of multiculturalism on it, thoughtlessly, I think it's daft. Uh, so I'm, I'm often a, a very impatient about, uh, about it. At the same time, I want writers to write it and create from our present day to incorporate and include uh, in, in, in the discourse and in the debate about it. Of course Let's it's dangerous. Let's bring your microphone. Here it comes. Of course yes. it's dangerous. Spe please, um, please. Art speak. and culture is dangerous. There. Thank oh, you. Hello. Please go. I, I feel it's a really dangerous statement. In many ways you're saying that um, if a performer is not of the same race as what was intended, they're in some ways omitted 
from the opportunity of performing that way. No, I didn't say <coughs> that at all. So, but you're suggesting that you can't have a black actor performing a white role within a Shakespearean piece. No, I'm not saying that at all. Then what are you saying, Barry? I, I'm saying that when you get situations for which there are no words, which then have to be acted out in mime and apologised for, that that's not. So to have a, a, a British black King Lear is not a problem for That's you. not a problem. Right. That's not a problem, no. No, it's the apologies for what you're doing in productions that are the problem. Well, I think we're getting the topic on the table now. <laughs> Let's go for it. Um, you know, I think that, yes, over here, you've had your hand up for a while, and I want to come back, please, to you. Here you are. Your name, please, and then... My name's um, Ashmead. Um, Michael, you mentioned something about in Shakespeare's time, people, their loyalty being questioned in terms of faith. Um, I think sometimes, as, as black Asian writers, our loyalty is questioned in terms of our color, and we are having to write those stories, and they're not always being recognized. Just in terms of the, the question up there, and this is open to the panel, do you think there is one national narrative, or how do we reflect many national narratives on our, all of our stages? Thank you. Yeah. Panelists? I think uh, you have to follow your own drum. You write what you know out of your culture, which is one of many streams, and they bump into each other and infuse one to the other. But you've got to follow your own drum. You know, and my drums are the English Civil War, Byron and Shelley, uh, you know, uh, Beethoven, uh, you know, had a black grandmother. But, um, but you've got to follow your own drum. I have been writing a lot of history plays, three history plays, which are safe, you see. <laughs> you could have black actors in, in extremis, you know, problem at all. But I'm, at the moment, trying to write a play set in the now, and the question is, what is the now? And it's, uh, it's a problem. But I think that's what you have to do as a writer. You follow your own drum. What do you know? You know, what out of your past? Out of what do you experience? And if you get it right, whether you're a black or white writer or whatever your race and your background, you will write the great, go to one of the great stories. You know? Love, hate, death, power, reforming society, you know, you, 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 you go to the great, the great stories. That's um, how I view it. Does that make sense? <clears throat> what do we think about the question of, if it's a multicultural society, how much do we need to truly see a subsection of that society reflected on the stages? This is another way to come at the question of casting. If the only way you can address a multicultural society is by making sure that those faces appear on our stages, uh, otherwise they're excluded, then we have to think of some ways to productively do that that aren't always going to be um, traditional. Right? Yeah, I, 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 I mean, this was a given on the paper, British theatre after multiculturalism. And I suppose nobody's, none of us have been given the brief of, of explaining how or why British theatre might be after multiculturalism. Um, and 
I'm maybe being yep. a bit yeah. simple, but it, it, it seems to me that we're still well pre multiculturalism yeah. rather than after it at all. Exactly. I mean, I'm. I mean, that's it. I mean, it's it's so it's very difficult when you come to this sort of as Topher Campbell. I'm. Um, when I saw a small company called the Red Room. Very difficult when you come to this sort of uh, conference when there are just so many different strands on the, on the table, really. And it was, I mean, partly coming here to listen and learn, which is very interesting, because I very rarely, I'm, I am a, you know, a pretty experienced theatre and television professional, and I don't have any contact with Shakespeare at all. And part of that is because of my culture, or because of my cultural background, and because of my experience within the profession. And they're very different kind of issues which I think haven't been raised here, which um, come in sort of, and I can only talk about them really in terms of words, in terms of choices of words, and not necessarily in terms of explaining any kind of, you know, um, kind of specialist knowledge or understanding myself. But one of them, it, when, when you talk um, about, you know, uh, everybody should talk, should write from their culture, I, I, you know, that's kind of a, that's, that's, a, that's a possibility. But it's not the writing from one's culture or the directing from one's culture or anything else. It's about also about the power, the, the way in which pieces of work, the way in which um, people who get to play roles, the way in which plays are commissioned, the way in the stages, you have the choice of going to the National or the Oval Theatre. Uh -huh. And perhaps <laughs> you know, having that conversation at a quite, a quite, a quite distinct level. A and some people don't even have the, the entree to that for lots of different reasons. The, 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 the woman earlier on who talked about the workshop with the... the um, the, the young, young young Muslim women. Again, that's another s sort of side of the spectrum. And it's, it's just kind of a certain, certain kind of presumption that somewhere that's sort of somewhere on the outside and this is somewhere on the inside. And I think that itself, the language we use has got to be very carefully constructed within this. Um, it's interesting to say controversial and things like that, Barry, about, about casting. However, there is another, another thing that has to be impacted, and that's the strategy within theatres in terms of employment. Who gets the experience to actually combat or engage with roles in relation to Shakespeare or, or if you like, people who are not so popular on the panel, Bernard Shaw or whoever else. Um, so there are lots of different kind of strands of thought that impact upon the idea of so-called multiculturalism. And I was interested in coming to this, this, this uh, conference because I haven't seen the word multiculturalism for a very long time. And I didn't know it was over. My lived experience is not that, you know. Um, I am engaged with the impact of being policed or being considered to be a certain kind of person, whether in my professional experience or in my personal experience on a daily basis, despite the fact that I'm now well into going into middle age myself. So I mean, the thing is, I find it very difficult then to sit here and listen to this without thinking about maybe we sometimes, and we have, we as black and Asian artists have to think outside the box when we come to the mainstream or when we come to the funders. And in the same way, I think, you know, we have to start thinking about how we actually engage with some of the bigger questions, which are, you know, Michael, you run a, a major institution, but as a, as a you know, how do, how do the Ashmi Choi's, how do other people come to you with ideas and projects to get managed? And I don't see how we can talk about beyond multiculturalism when actually the powers have not changed. The same people are sitting in the same seats mm -hmm. and making the same kind of decisions. And actually, there's a lot of cultural activity that's happening way outside of what might be considered the, 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 the mainstream. And I just think, so there's a lot of sort of gabbling I've just said there, but it's, it's just to bring, up, bring about the fact that I think there are, there are certain things which cannot be said emphatically and can have to be challenged, which, you know, my, my niece or my nephew who may want to come into the theatre may go to see a piece of Shakespeare and see 
50 white people on stage and wonder what it is that I'm supposed to be engaged in and never come back. Um, and that's the sad thing because that's, you know, we all, we all love that language. But at the same time, you may never go to the community center and meet the young women and understand their histories. And that's also a sad thing. So somehow, somehow we have to sort of find a way of bridging this kind of strange imaginary space between those two places or several places. So that's my little... I think, I think one of the best well, ways of no. doing that, as I've said before, is the, is, the, is the nurturing and the embracing of writing. And that, and that, that, that uh, you know, I mean, uh, and also the multiculturalism is not, it's a, it's a word now that we associate with, 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 with either colour or religion. You know, for ages, the minority in Cumbria and the disenfranchised have been hill farmers. You know, for ages, the tin workers in Cornwall. For, you know, it's not we, we have to include everybody and make it a debate which gets away from this emotional uh, claptrap as well, uh, that it's just about uh, religion and just about a different colour. And that there are many, many strands of people who are disenfranchised who have, who, who, whose, whose life has come up because of, of, of the word multiculturalism that we use now. We are indeed at lunchtime. Um, I'm going to uh, tell you that. In terms of the, the title of this conference, you must see it all as contested. There's a certain irony in this altogether now question mark, British theatre after multiculturalism. I don't know who would be um, wanting to get up and defend that it is after multiculturalism. Maybe some people will but it's very much on the table for debate for through the rest of the conference, and I think we've only just gotten started. So please join me in thanking the panel and in getting ready to move on to lunch. This conference was supported by the School of Theatre Performance and Cultural Policy Studies at the University of Warwick. Warwick Arts Centre, the Humanities Research Centre at the University of Warwick, and the Department of Drama and Theatre at Royal Holloway.